For Stark Law compliance, it is a best practice to have vibrant, defensible documentation to support fair market value. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Episode 5 of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I'm your host for this podcast. And today we're going to be talking about the practical defensibility documentation for fair market value. As I have discussed in the previous episodes, fair market value is a pinnacle issue in both the anti-kickback statute as well as the Stark Law. And as I have inferred in previous episodes, that violations could lead to a violation of the False Claims Act, which means that the damages and fines and penalties can be very substantial and very severe. So in this presentation, I want to go through practically how do you document fair market value? I told you previously that I was in-house for seven years as the compliance officer and also the general counsel for a hospital system. And I focused heavily on documenting fair market value for our physician financial arrangements. And that's because the fair market value was one of the issues that led up to the organization being under a corporate integrity agreement. Now I'll talk a little bit about that case in a future episode, uh, just talking about the specific facts and circumstances of that case. But here's kind of the general threshold. And in previous episodes, I talked about the safe harbor for fair market value that uh, CMS developed in the, in the phase two regulations of the Stark Law, which was basically the hourly rate at the 50th percentile when you averaged uh, benchmark data sources. And so it's been my view, and I've said this multiple times at multiple uh, presentations, that as long as the total cash compensation is at the 50th percentile or less, you're basically safe. Uh, there are some ex very few exceptions to that rule, but it's a general rule that you, if you're at the 50th percentile of the average of some benchmark sources, or even one benchmark source, uh, you're safe. Then you get between the 50th and the 75th percentiles of total cash compensation, then the documentation needs to be more vibrant. You have to document why is this physician 
warrant, why does this physician warrant to be compensated above the 50th percentile? You get between the 75th and the 90th, you need more, and above the 90th, you need to have very, very, very vibrant documentation. One of the rules that I recommend to my clients, and I do this type of work, but uh, most of my clients, and when I was in-house, any time that the total cash compensation was at the 75th percentile or higher, I saw it external third-party review of that compensation. Now, what I do for my clients is I develop a, a very detailed letter analysis that goes through uh, the reasons or justifications why I believe that the compensation should be capable of being defended as representative of fair market value. And notice that you're talking about the compensation being representative of fair market value. At times, I do also do a defensibility range to let the client know this is the range for the compensation, but usually I'm dealing with specific compensation or specific outcomes of compensation to determine whether or not that compensation is defensible. From my perspective, and there are individuals that may disagree with this position, but from my perspective, the, the best starting point is having some benchmark data. Uh, you know, looking at Sullivan Cotter, the uh, Medical Group Management Association, the Medi American Medical Group Association, and the like, and determine from that benchmark data. Uh, you, you pull together not only what the projected total cash compensation is, and maybe I need to pause there about total cash compensation. Total cash compensation means all in. Uh, you cannot segregate in the compensation that, okay, this is only for clinical compensation, or this is only for administrative compensation, or this is only for research compensation. When the respondents to benchmark data reply to the benchmark data sources, the question is asked you know, to provide the total cash compensation that that physician is receiving. So we'll always start from a position of total cash compensation. Then I would look at the productivity factors uh, to the best that I can, uh, either looking at historical productivity factors or projected productivity factors. So the most used productivity factor is the work RVU. And as I've described, the work RVU is that unit of, of work assigned by CMS that they believe uh, represents the weight of the service performed by the physician. So the, And also be careful here, you want to make sure that you're receiving uh, work RVUs or WRVUs for personally performed services. And I do get some pushback at times and say, well, how do we know that the respondents to the benchmark data is actually uh, only reporting personally performed services? Maybe they're also reporting uh, WRVUs based upon shared services in the hospital setting or incident two services in the office setting. And the way that the instructions go from these benchmark sources is they are supposed to identify whether or not the WRVUs being reported are personally performed or if they include WRVUs from other sources like non-physician practitioners. And from my discussions with the benchmark uh, source companies is that if, if the re, uh, respondent is marking the box that it does include WRVUs from other sources like NPPs, then those work RVUs are not included in the respondents or in the analysis. So uh, for the most part, from what the benchmark sources are telling us is the WRVUs are being reported are personally performed. 
personally performed WRVUs. You also may look at patient visits, collections, or charges. Uh, there are some strengths and weaknesses with all of that, especially if you're representing a nonprofit or a tax-exempt hospital then or an employer. Then a lot of times if you're looking at collections, it may skew the results because if you're representing a tax-exempt entity or a nonprofit, there may be a higher uh, likelihood that the physician is seeing charity care patients or Medicaid patients, uh, and those obviously would have a lower collections uh, than if, if somebody was uh, providing services only for third-party payers. Then I also would take a look at the uh, type of compensation. Uh, obviously, we know it's cash, but the type of compensation, is it a fixed salary, or is it a base salary plus production? Or is it a full production compensation? So it's all driven by their work RVUs or all driven by the number of patient visits. Or is there some or all of the compensation based upon quality? Uh, I have worked with clients on developing a quality compensation that's 100% quality and 0% focusing on productivity. It's rare. I think that that's where the payers, including Medicare, are going. They're looking more toward uh, holistic medicine and quality outcomes versus just straight production. Uh, but uh, a lot of the benchmark sources are not there yet. And unless you're going to fit into a value-based uh, compensation arrangement, which I'll talk about later, uh, we are still tied to the total cash compensation have to be at fair market value. So these quality components can either be full, partial, or based upon a bonus. And for the most part, I see quality bonuses uh, being developed at somewhere around 10 to 15% of a physician's total cash compensation. Then also we'll look at the non-clinical hours. So is this physician providing a medical directorship, uh, research, uh, participation as a member of the medical staff executive committee or an officer for their service line within the hospital? And what's important about non-clinical compensation is that you can when you're evaluating productivity, let's assume that we're going to be doing a review based upon work RVUs. And if 20% of a physician's overall uh, activity is based upon administrative services, so non-WRVU producing uh, compensation, then you can administratively assign or allocate work RVUs. Sometimes in the industry, we call this phantom work RVUs. Uh, but some people uh, you know, frown on the use of the word phantom because they believe it means fictitious. But it really is just a way of evaluating the, the physician's total cash compensation by providing some WRVU credit for compensation that is not tied to WRVU producing activities. Then we turn to the benchmark data. Now, here is the, uh, when you look at the benchmark data, there's various things to do. Well, first off, you want to make sure that you understand the specialty of the physician and making sure that the physician, the services being rendered by the physician are services that are reflective of the specialty that you're using. I came across one situation where I was dealing with a cardiothoracic surgeon 
And obviously a cardiothoracic surgeon is going to make more money, just straight from a benchmarking perspective, more money than an internal medicine. But when we got behind the numbers and behind the activity, that about 50% of this cardiothoracic surgeon services was to provide just general follow-up internal medicine care. So it may not be commercially reasonable. Now, I use that word, commercially reasonable, with respect to fair market value. So there's a commercial reasonable application of benchmark data. And so in that case, when 50% of the services were what I would deem to be internal medicine services and 50% were cardiothoracic surgery services, then you would have to come up with a hybrid type of benchmark range that would give an allocation 50% to internal medicine and 50% to the services of a cardiothoracic surgeon. And uh, sometimes you also do have uh, physicians that may specialize in palliative care. Most of the benchmark sources have palliative care benchmark ranges. And let's say we do have an orthopedic surgeon that provides 25% of his or her services to palliative care. So patients who may be in a hospice program then you're going to want to create a hybrid benchmark range uh, that is allocating 75% to orthopedics, by way of example, and 25% to palliative care. And you'll do all of this with respect to total cash compensation and also the productivity component that you are using. So if you're using WRVUs, you'll do the same thing. You'll create a WRVU range uh, as well as you'd create a range for the compensation per work RVU. So typically, let's assume that we're using WRVUs, which is what I typically use for my defensibility analysis and what a lot of other evaluators do. There are three different tables that you're using. You're using total cash compensation, WRVU productivity, so the annual WRVUs produced, and then also compensation per WRVU. And you want to be careful with the compensation per WRVU benchmark range because it's an inverted benchmark range, meaning that the individuals who are being paid at the 90th percentile compensation per work RVU are not your individuals who are the most busy. These are the physicians who typically are less busy because by way of example, if you have a physician that you're compensating at total cash at the 50th percentile, but that physician is producing work RVUs down at the 10th percentile, when you will take their total cash and divide that by the work RVUs, you're going to get a very high compensation per WRVU. And so you, you know, typically in a kind of a rule of thumb that I use as well as some other evaluators use is as long as the compensation per WRVU is at the 60th percentile or less, Again, 60th percentile or less. I'd like to be at the 50th percentile or less. But if you're at the 60th percentile or less, then you're in a fairly safe zone when you're evaluating compensation uh, based upon compensation per WRVU. And sometimes some, uh, some people call this a conversion factor. Uh, so it can either, you can refer to it as compensation per WRVU or the conversion factor uh, when you apply the work RVUs to the compensation uh, per WRVU. So most of the time I'm seeing employers, like hospital employers, they will provide a fixed base salary. Let's assume the fixed base salary is like at the 50th percentile. 
And then if the physician produces WRVUs above a certain threshold, let's say the threshold is going to be at the 55th percentile or the 60th percentile, then that physician will receive compensation for each incremental work RVU above the threshold at the, let's say, the 50th percentile benchmarked compensation per WRVU. So that's the typical process that I, I would go through in using those three benchmarking sources in order to evaluate the compensation. Then what you need to do is then you start taking a look at how would you defend this compensation arrangement and what type of documentation should I have in my file. Well, like I said previously, if the total cash compensation is at the 50th percentile or less, you're fairly safe. I don't believe that you need to have much in the file except for the fact that you looked at the benchmark data and determined that the total cash compensation is at the 50th percentile or less. Obviously, it would be a best practice to have some type of justification in the file to support uh, the amount of compensation that you're paying, even if it's at the 50th percentile or less. Then I look at for what I call the 10% rule. Now, my 10% rule is I typically would be seeking to have the total cash compensation not benchmarking by greater than 10 percentage points when compared with the WRVU production. So let's say if we have a physician that is producing at the 65th percentile, of work RVUs, then I typically would like to see the total cash compensation for that physician at the 75th percentile or less. So be looking at a 10 percentile differential. Uh, then the next thing I would look at is the resulting calculated compensation per WRVU. So I take their total cash compensation and I look at the total cash compensation, divide that by the work RVUs to see what that product is. And if the resulting compensation per WRVU is at the 60th percentile or less, then you're typically safe. Again, I would like to see it at the 50th percentile or less, which means that you're at the average for the benchmark sources. Then the next cut that I look at is I do a statistical analysis, and some of the benchmarking sources like the Medical Group Management Association or Sullivan Cotter uh, allow a what I call a statistical scatter graph to be produced. So you will plot the total cash compensation and the work RVUs either performed or expected for that physician to see where the resulting total cash compensation plots. And in these type of graphs, you'll typically see a plus one and minus one standard deviation line. And the reason why that's important is between the plus one and minus one, from a statistical perspective, 68% of respondents will have total cash compensation between the plus one and minus one standard deviation lines. So if the total cash compensation for our targeted physician is below or at or below the plus one standard deviation line, then you can say that there's statistical support based upon that specialty for the total cash compensation. And then if we are above the plus one, so we are greater than the 10% rule, the, total, the compensation per WRVU is greater than the 60th percentile, and we're above the plus one standard deviation line, then you know, based upon the 2021 rules, you can look at other factors, what I call subjective factors. 
and to, to, to determine if, the, if there's a reason. So things like uh, time studies to see whether or not this physician is actually working more than a 1.0 FTE standard, which is 2080 hours. You know, you'll take a look at uh, the, the non-physician practitioner supervision, research compensation, medical staff services, uh, which would say that this physician's in a leadership position, uh, attempts to recruit physicians in a particular specialty that have failed, which is showing that in your market, it's challenging to recruit, employ, and retain a physician of a particular specialty, which may have to have uh, compensation in order to convince the physician to remain in the service area. You may have a documented deficiency. You look at board certifications, uh, whether or not you have a renowned program, uh, medical program. Uh, maybe your only alternative is locum tenens. And if uh, like I call this the Hail Mary defense, that if your only alternative, like but for paying this physician at X, your only alternative is locum tenens, and locum tenens will be much higher. So those are the other things that I would do is look at subjective factors. And in future episodes, I will probably drill down and how you evaluate these subjective factors. But anytime I find that there's a benchmark disconnect, that compensation is exceeding where any type of productivity standard is, then I go into the subjective factors and look at the subject transaction to determine if I can defend it. To close out this episode, we're going to turn to the Captain Integrity Punch Points. So Captain Integrity Punch Point number one is benchmark data should be a practical starting point when documenting fair market value. Captain Integrity Punch Point number two, you should align production with total cash compensation to see if there's an alignment. And Captain Integrity Punch Point number three, as you look at the subject transaction to determine if there are business judgments or subjective factors that can support the total cash compensation if there's not an alignment with productivity. So again, the three capital integrity punch points, number one, benchmark data is a practical starting point. Number two, align productivity with total cash compensation. And number three, apply uh, subjective factors in order to support the total compensation. So thank you for joining me for episode five of Stark Integrity. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.